Well, good morning again. Please open with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 John chapter 4 as we continue on through this letter. Another week. Another text. Another passage walking through the same book. Hearing some of the same themes. As we seek to understand what the Lord would have us learn and how we should worship over the word together this morning. The text that I want to digest together is verse 19 through verse 4a. When you ever see letters next to the numbers, that uh, means the first part of that verse, because as it turns out, I would suggest that from the second part of verse 4 onward actually starts a new section. And I think, I think it's fairly clear, but that uh, we'll wait for next time. Let's read it together here. Read along with me. After talking about perfect love, casting out fear, he writes, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, has not, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God... And obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. For the same reasons outlined last time, I'm not going to try to distill a main point. It would feel equally ad hoc and contrived. Uh, as this section brings to a close what really started in verse 7. And when we left off last time, as I just mentioned, John was talking about perfect love, that is to say love when it has completed its purpose in us, does two things. Number one, it results in an outpouring of love for one another, but it also has a residual effect of giving us confidence to stand in the judgment such that John can say perfected love, when love has reached its end in us, casts out fear. That we will have no fear before God when love has done its work in us, when we've been made mature in love. But then John here kind of goes to the root of it all, doesn't he, in verse 9? A short verse that is remarkable for its content, but also its lack of qualifications. We love because he first loved us. John says that our capacity to love, the explanation for our capacity to love, in the first place, is God's love for us. There are some who take this as a general reference to humanity's capacity to love. I think the context strongly favors the loving other believers 
uh, because that is the primary theme of this section, and it embodies the particular Christian brand of love that John is interested in for whatever you can say about more generic versions of love in the world. We love one another because he first loved us. That, that seems to be where we're situated contextually. And, and you know, that's very much unlike many of the things that we learn and many of the capacities that we have. We often learn by people teaching us things, and it's unlikely that we are going to excel past them in this life unless you know, they get very old and cannot do that thing anymore. I heard a martial arts practitioner say to me the other day, you're never going to whoop your sensei. You know, that, that's kind of the idea. That's kind of the idea. But, if, but as we touched on last, last time, if our capacity for love is governed by, if, our capac- if the ceiling on our capacity to love is set by the, the love that we have experienced, a lot of us are going to be sunk. Okay? A lot of us are going to be sunk because we don't have any good experience or very few experiences of being loved really, really well. And even the good examples are still broken in one way or another, aren't they? So what John is saying is, no, 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 it doesn't matter what crummy version of love that you've experienced from your friends, from your family, your capacity to love, your ceiling is not set by your past. Your ceiling is not set by your context. The capacity to love, your capacity to love comes from a totally different source. You love because God first loved you. He comes before your love. And that should give tremendous hope for everyone, but particularly people who really just struggle with this idea of loving well because, honestly, love hasn't showed up in their life the way they've wanted it to. Or maybe it showed up, but it showed up a lot later than they wanted it to or something like that. And the good news, one of of the good pieces of news this morning is that your capacity to love, because we love... We love because God first loved us. Therefore, your capacity to love is not defined by who's loved you and what examples that you've seen, but by an example of a God who sent his only son to die for you, for you, and to give you life. So let that that sink in. We love because he first loved us, and then having this capacity has consequences in the family of God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He says, the person who says, I love God but hates his brother is a liar. We've heard that multiple times here in 1 John. Multiple times. But here he gives a new reason. He gives a new reason for a recycled truth. And the reason he gives is not being able to love unseen if you can't love the seen. That's his reason here. You have no hope of loving that which you cannot see, namely God. If you don't love what you can see. But you still might ask this. Why? 
I can tell you that. I mean, again, it seems clear what he's saying. Can't love a flesh and blood brother or sister. You're not going to love God who you haven't seen. Okay, I understand that. But why? Why, why does that relationship hold if I can't do this, I can't do this? Like, what, What's the nature of the argument here? Because he doesn't exactly put it out there. He doesn't exactly tell us why, if I can't do this, I can't do this. You know, It's not true that if I can't throw a football, I can't uh, in, you know, do a layup in basketball. I mean, what's the relationship exactly between the two? He doesn't exactly put it out there. Some have su- suggested that he's saying it's easier to love people than God um, because, uh, be, uh, excuse me, that, it's, that, if you, that if you cannot love God who you have not seen, you have, uh, th- then you're not going to love brothers and sisters in Christ that you have seen because they are, uh, they are easier to love than God. That's the idea. The idea is that they are easier to love than God. Now, some people might wonder if that's actually true. You might think, really? Are people easier to love than God? Okay? That's, but, but besides that, you, this understanding doesn't really seem to take into account the invisibility factor. Okay, it doesn't really have to say what the invisibility of God here really seems to play a, a meaningful role in the comparison. What do we make of that? It's not entirely clear. Others have suggested he's saying something about people's inability to love outside of Christ. And so really this is saying something like the only real love of God is on God's terms as it has actually been revealed in Christ and not just generically as an invisible God, which of course is obviously true, but it's not obviously what this is saying. It's not obviously the true theological conclusion. It's not clear that it comes out of this text. Um, It seems to me the best explanation of the kind of seen-unseen principle here relates to how one goes about loving others versus God. John has specifically mentioned love for one another as action and specifically meeting needs when we have the ability to do so, so that we are loving not just in word and talk, but in, but in deed. And in that, the love of God is completed. Okay, so you could say, I get that. I got that. I got us that far. Great. But, but, but now someone could say, who has a firm grasp on that, well, how do I love God? Who, who doesn't have any needs and isn't served by human hands and I can't see? And that's a fine question. It's a question that John has actually already answered and he will answer again in this passage. But here he steps back and says, if someone can't love those whose presence requires no faith to believe in and whose needs require no special revelation to identify then it won't be possible for them to have a relationship of love based on faith with someone who has no needs to be met. Okay? If someone, if I can't love someone whose presence requires no faith to, faith to believe in and whose needs require no spe- special revelation to identify, I can't, if I can't do that, it's not going to be possible for me to have a relationship of love that is based on faith with a God who has no needs. And so in that sense, it is more challenging to love 
God than to love flesh and blood human beings, but it's not because people present you know, less problems or less social-emotional challenges than God, which is obviously not true. People present far greater emotional problems and social challenges than God, and in that sense are far more difficult to love. And, but rather, the difficulty is the manner in which we engage and love people. Our five senses, physical presence, direct concrete action steps, That is far less mysterious, and it doesn't rely on believing things passed down to us from the beginning about someone we've never seen. That's what I'm suggesting John is saying. And he's saying if if you can't do this, you can't love this, have no chance of loving this. No chance. And so it's not surprising then that we see the command from God which appears multiple times, by the way, in John's gospel, that we are to love one another. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So again, we see the one who claims to love God but does not love his brother is a fraud. Is a fraud. Now there's an unfortunate chapter break here, but that should not deter us from moving on in the same sequence of thought. And John continues on with this theme of love while transitioning to close the section by going back to another one of his central themes, and that is the idea of being born of God. Being born of God, a critical theme in John's theology. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So this takes us back to the application from last week. Remember I said as one of the three strands of assurance that only those who have been born of God can truly confess that Jesus is the Christ? That's what this is right here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now remember that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Mashiach, the, 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 the Messiah, is, not, is shorthand. It's not just that Jesus was a historical person or that God, uh, that God got a bod, you know, a couple thousand years ago and just that's it. It's the whole mission as Messiah, particularly his atoning and sacrificial death, which some of these people who have gone out from John's community seem to think that, that uh, may not be necessary, may not be necessary or at least not necessary anymore. And he's saying, no. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ on his own terms relative to the mission he came to accomplish, the Messiah, the anointed one that he proclaimed himself to be. And then additionally, he gives us a different angle on what we just discussed at the close of four. Everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of him. And the second part of verse one, everyone who loves the Father loves Uh, I'm sorry, Uh, I read it twice, in case you were not clear. Everyone who loves the Father has been born of Him. And What am I looking at? Give me one second here. I promise this is going to work. Oh, there it is. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Apologize, apologize for that. So what does he say? 
He says that people who have been born of God, you know what they do? They love their family. They love their brothers and sisters. They love their siblings. Okay? Their father has many who have been born of him. And guess what that makes them? Siblings. Siblings. And that's what he says. That's what he says. Everyone who loves the father loves the father's kids. They love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And in verse 2, John, verse 2 is not what we would expect after that. I'm just telling you right now. It's not what we would expect. By this we know, we certainly could expect that, just to be very clear. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So here John reverses what we would have expected. He reverses it, doesn't he? By this we know that we love God, that we love the children of God. Isn't that what we probably should have read? But that's not what it says. Interestingly, he flips it. He inverts it. And he's doing this for a reason. Here he's saying, how do I know if I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? I know that I'm loving them when I love God and obey His commandments. Or in other words, you might say when my life is rightly ordered relative to theirs according to God's law. I'm not murdering. I'm not stealing. I'm not coveting, for example. I'm meeting needs in front of me. And he completes what then is becomes a very obvious piece of circular reasoning in verse 3. But it's circular reasoning for a point, for a very specific purpose. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Now, compare that back, back, back up to verse 21 of chapter 4. And this, His commandment, this is the commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So do you see this circle here? This is an incredible piece of circularity. If we love God, how do we obey God's commandment? We love the children of God. How do we love the children of God? By loving God. What does love of God consist in? Keeping the commandments. What's the commandment? Whoever loves God must love his brother. How do I love my brother? I love God and keep the commandments. What's the commandments? And on and on. So what is he doing here? He's not trying to be silly. He's trying to say that these are all integrally tied up together. They are mutually entailing. They are mutually entailing and they are inseparable. It's not possible to have one without the others and it's not possible to lack one with also, without also lacking the others. All of them are a package deal. All of them are a package deal. They are mutually entailing. You have to have all of them. They all contribute to explaining the other, and you have to take the whole. You have to take the whole. Calvin here is worth quoting briefly. He says, John shows in these words what true love is, even that which is towards God. He has hitherto taught us, prior, that there is never a true love to God except when our brethren are also loved. We've hit that one hard. We've hit that one hard. There's never a true love of God unless brothers and sisters in Christ are also loved. That's being expressed. 
for this is ever its effect. But now he teaches us that men are rightly and duly loved when God holds the primacy. You know how I love you? By loving God more than you. That's how I can love you. If I go try to love you just as the end, or you are the one who has the control over my affections and my desires, and it's you are the one that I yearn for ultimately, when I go try to love you, I'm going to make a mess of it. I'm going to slip into emotional addiction. I'm going to slip into relational idolatry. I'm going, it's going to end up as a disaster. But when I love God more than the person in front of me, my friends, my wife, my children, it allows me to actually love them as I should. Because I'm keeping the order of my loves in check. I'm keeping the order of my loves in check. In the second half of the verse, John steps back from the circle that he just drew. He steps back. And he gives a commentary of his own on the commands of God. And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Now we're going to come back to this one in application. Because I found that that if you don't give this one some special care, people are thrown for a loop very quickly. What exactly is that supposed to mean? Am I supposed to feel like fighting sin is easy? If I'm serving someone in love and it's a real drag, like it's very burdensome, is something broken in me? Like am I doing it wrong? Because it's hard? Because it's not fun? I'm obeying the command, but whoo, man, it's a heavy load to carry. Am I supposed to conclude that following Jesus and His commands more generally is not difficult? Those are great questions, ones to which we will momentarily return. But not before what I would consider the final clause of the whole section, which is clearly related to the commands not being burdensome, and I think will help us out in our application. He says, For, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And just like when we addressed overcoming the world earlier, because those born of God have one in them who is greater than the one who is in the world, and because he has overcome the world, so will those born of God. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Christ has overcome the world. The overcoming lang language here is triumph language. It is, it's the Greek word Nike, or you're probably more familiar with hearing Nike. Victory. Right? The swoosh, that's the language here. Has been victorious over. Has conquered in competition. That's, that's kind of the language here. And, and what's going to be elaborated on in the next section, this is, this, this is a decisive win in the battle for, for truth and, and loyalty. The world and the evil one, 
call everyone born into the realm of ruins to come, oh, come behold the God of this age and the pleasures and promises of the world. It is a fight from day one for everybody's heart. And the overcoming of those born of God is a decisive rejection of the world and the evil one and the falsehood which, which seduces those in darkness. Let me, give you, let me give you an example. Everyone has had the great misfortune of having a door-to-door salesman come to your house. And so you've got to have good tactics to handle these things, okay? Now, I, used, I did door-to-door sales for four months to help fund the honeymoons, the worst, uh, for, four, for four weeks, oh, sorry, definitely not four months. Four weeks, it was truly awful. I felt bad for the people who were coming to the door. Because I don't want someone knocking on my door. Okay? But anyways, someone came to the door the other day. And as someone who has done this, I know just the best way. I mean, I promise you. So here's my method. I hear the, 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 the doorbell ring. I proceed to my office and I look through the blinds. I see someone with a clipboard pretending to write something. It's just, you know, posture. I immediately pull out my cell phone. And I walk to the door. And I open the main door and the storm door. Hey, hey, bad time. Yeah, thank you so much. You're doing great. You're doing great. All right. And I close the door. Okay. And guess what happens? Okay. That man is competing for my time. And I sent him away. He walked right over the other house. He was overcome. Okay. He was overcome. I, I My time was saved. Okay, my, my psyche did not have to be in turmoil hearing about the new product that I did not need. And what I'm suggesting is that there is a decisive kind of turning away. There is a decisive kind of sending away victory over someone who is competing for you for those who have been born of God. They have overcome the world because those who are in them, he who is in them is greater than he is in the world. And he has, in fact, overcome the world. That's a theme that we will pick up on next time when we ask, what is the means by which that overcoming happens? And that's the second part of the verse, and that is by faith. But that's going to take us into another section. Well, I mentioned that I would like to return to the idea that the commands of God are not burdensome. In saying this, John represents what Jesus himself says about following him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Then he gives this personal, autobiographical information about himself. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It seems like there's a yoke and there's a burden that actually gives rest, which is paradoxical, isn't it? A yoke and a burden that actually gives rest, but that it is not itself burdensome. And yet, at the same time, the same Jesus also says things like this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa, all of a sudden, it doesn't sound quite as light. You know, that didn't sound quite as easy. It sounded like the yoke, you know, a little heavier in that passage, you know. We're told to take up our cross, an instrument of death. 
and follow him. And we're told that as a result, we'll be hated by all nations for it. We're told in Paul's letters that our whole life is a fight against sin in the pursuit of holy obedience. And so certainly a sober-minded person could get here and wonder, what exactly does it mean that these commands are not burdensome? Because I could think of a couple of ways in which they sure seem to be. Right? You feel the tension? Right? You feel the problem here? So we should start by just looking right here in 1 John, because this is where we find verse 3, and remember what are the commandments of God. And both here and in chapter 3, it's really the same thing. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Okay, So we're able to believe because we have been born of God. We're able to love because He first loved us. I take it that we've got that. All right, got that. Born of God, believe in the Son of God. I can love because He first loved us. All right, but isn't loving one another hard? Isn't obeying commands to love one another hard? Like it sounds so great in the abstract, but loving concrete people in concrete situations doing is it just seems extremely hard. Furthermore, past what John is zooming in on contextually, isn't walking in the light more generally and not flirting with the world and sin hard as well? Paul calls it a battle. How is it that these commandments are not burdensome then? And here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest that the commands are not burdensome in the way that exercise is not burdensome. Which initially, you're like, ooh, that is not a helpful analogy. But just wait. Okay? I want to suggest that the commands of God are not burdensome in the way that exercise isn't burdensome. And it's not that it doesn't take a lot of effort. That's not it. That's placing the burden in the wrong place for the language. It's that the fruit of your effort and exercise makes you happier and healthier and stronger, increases your well-being, and actually, in many cases, literally causes you to bear less weight. Okay? It's not that the effort I put into exercise, that there is no effort there. That that's not hard. But it's that the result and the fruit of effort is something that uplifts, you might say. And in the case of the commands of God, it isn't that loving others or pursuing holiness doesn't take effort. It's that those efforts enrich and they strengthen and they protect our lives instead of efforts towards other things. Because make no mistake about it, everyone's making efforts towards something. Everyone is making effort towards something, even if they don't realize it. They're making efforts towards something. To help this come into focus, I want to contrast it. I want to contrast grace-driven, faith-fueled obedience as children of God who have overcome with three other forms of effort. And let's see what they yield. Let's see what they yield. Let's see what kind of burden that they yield. The first is... The weight of pursuing sin. The weight of pursuing sin. And let me just back up and say, if you, I should have said this. If you go back to the Matthew 11 passage where Jesus is talking about 
finding rest for your souls, it seems that that's what's going on. That's how we should understand the easy, uh, the, the easy burden and yoke. Okay, the, the, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How are we supposed to understand those things? They seem to be things that give rest for my soul. It's not like things that you put on and, and it's like, oh, this is, this is weightless. No one would have understood the imagery that way. Okay? It's that they accomplish a particular effect. What effect do they accomplish? The one that I'm laying out right here. The one that I'm laying out right here. Having said that, the weight of pursuing sin. I've been going through the prologue of Proverbs in my own time in the Word, and there you find some amazing examples of pursuing sin and foolishness. And you heard it in the first Scripture reading, didn't you? The first Scripture reading you heard about the folks who say, hey, let's lie and wait for someone, set a trap and steal their stuff. It'll be awesome. We'll be rich. They'll be on the floor. We'll laugh and we'll head out. And they don't know that what's happening. What are they actually doing? They're setting a trap for themselves. They're setting a trap for themselves. Proverbs 6, 12 through 15. Listen to this. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. And in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Beyond healing. What about the person pursuing sexual sin particularly? Oh, the adulterous proverbial woman of Proverbs 7 tells us what happens. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her, because he is so compelled by this woman, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So if you're paying attention when I outline this, that's a lot of effort there. That's a lot of effort, but guess what? It's effort that crushes. It's effort that kills. It's doing things that will not give life. I, was, I remember working out in a gym once, and you always have this person who thinks you're much stronger than they actually are, stacking all these plates on the bench press bar, and the spotter kind of lifts the bar off them. They're like, are you ready? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. All right. They're like, help. Just get one rep on this set. I'm just going to do one rep. What have they done? They, they very quickly realized that they actually can't hold up under the burden that they've created for themselves. They are crushed by it. They think, oh yeah, I'm about to get big. And instead, what they did is get crushed. By contrast... The commands of God and Christ are like a yoke that will give you life and rest. Pursuing sin in many and devising sin especially can be exhausting. And after it's exhausting, it'll kill you. Pursuing Christ may very well be exhausting, but it'll give you life. It'll give you life. 
because the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Understood to mean rest for your souls. What about the weight of performing or doing? Um, few prolonged experiences are more miserable and more frequent in church than the burdensome task of trying to do enough to please God. Do enough to make sure God's happy with me this week so I don't feel the crushing weight of his fatherly disappointment. Jesus uh, critiques the Pharisees for this very thing, doesn't he? Matthew 23. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, his burdens, but they themselves are not willing to move, uh, not willing to move them with their finger. For the person putting their effort into the crushing burden of performance, the answer to how much is enough is the same answer as the billionaire's answer to how much money is enough. What is it? Who, told, who said it? Oh, it's not what I was looking for, though. That was good, though. More. More. Ask a billionaire, how much is enough? Like, when can you stop? When can you stop? Because when you're in the pleasing God game, you could always do one more thing. You could always pray a little bit more. You could always go serve one more person. You could always do, 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 do. And guess what? It destroys people from within. Because it creates this tremendous burden. It takes a tremendous amount of effort. And then, like our overzealous and perhaps naive bench presser, from above, they heap all this weight on thinking that they can do it when in fact they can't and it all comes tumbling down in crushing disaster and shame and guilt and I'm not enough. The burden of doing when someone else has done for you already is so, so heavy. The burden of doing and trying to perform your way into the favor of God when someone has already worked for you to the point of death is exhausting. And it will be like an anchor around your neck walking around in this life that no one can see. However, believing in the name of the Son of God, loving those who have been born from above, it can take you to heights that you never imagined. And it can give you a freedom that can only be really, truly experienced, not, not communicated. I can tell you about it, but I can't tell you what it's like until you experience it. Finally, let's, let's just contrast the, the commands of God and their lack of burden with the weight of hopelessness. The weight of hopelessness. This one is for your... Moralistic secularist, those good folks in your neighborhood who just aren't Christians, you might say. Who in their honest moments see all of the evil and devastation in the world. They see how little they can actually do about it. Almost nothing. On scale, on scale. And then they realize that the sum of all their efforts will be nothing. They will become worm food. 
and all the people that they served will too. Life ends at the grave, and that's it. So what you have to do is you have to try to stand up a meaningful life within the scaffolding of despair, which is exactly what Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, tried to do. I want to close by reading a larger excerpt from his most famous essay called A Free Man's Worship. A Free Man's Worship. And I want you to listen and try to imagine what it would be like to live like this. That man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin... His growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All of these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. And then he famously says, Only within the scaffolding of these truths and only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. You know, I've got to hand it to Bertram. He owned, he owned his worldview. He owned his worldview. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can we possibly build a meaningful life as we eke out our tiny little existence here. And the, I've seen it before, and so have you. The tremendous amount of effort that people with no hope put forth to sustain their own lives and to try to do enough good to feel good about themselves is kind of a humanitarian, kind of a humanist. And for them, it's the same thing, more and more and more. But there is no answer. For them, there isn't someone who has done it for them. They are wracked with the same guilt that sometimes Christians put on themselves, except for them, there's no absolution except more. Maybe I'll do more. And particularly in light of all the evil in the world and all the suffering, it is a burden that crushes them, at least at an internal existential level that they quietly consider. By contrast, what does Jesus say? Everyone who has left houses or sisters, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for not my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It sounds really hard to leave all those things. But guess what? The command is not burdensome because it gives life 
It will give life. It will lift you up. They are not burdensome. Even as we strive with grace-driven, faith-fueled effort to obey God, by the grace of God in us, we rejoice because we know that the commands of God protect our lives, that wisdom guards us, that wisdom is our crown, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and that he who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. Let's pray. God, we stand amazed that you would enter this broken world to redeem and rescue. And you would find, give us a way to find rest for our souls with an easy yoke and a light burden. God, please do not let us confuse a light burden with taking your commands lightly as we strive for holiness and we fight to live lives that are in the light. Lord, we confess that none of us have done this perfectly. And so we rejoice that your son has made it atonement, propitiation for sin. We pray, Lord, that we would surrender our position by performance mindsets. That we would turn away from sin that will end up being heavy millstones around our neck. That you would help us in our moments of doubt or crises of faith. That you would hold us fast even as we seek to walk in faithfulness. We ask in Jesus' name.